You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. We're going to be in Philippians 4, and we're going to be reading verses 10 through 13. So Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. I, uh, the sun is shining. It is Mother's Day. I got my chacos on and my pants rolled up. What could go wrong, right? But I just spilled water, so that is water. I was just over there, uh, just to clarify. Actually, two weeks ago, I spilled an entire cup of coffee all over myself in the, in the back thing right before communion, and thankfully it was not the Sunday I had to come up here because it was very embarrassing. Uh, all right, but it is Mother's Day, and what I love to do on Mother's Day is to honor one of you moms out there today. I don't know who it's going to be, but I'm going to honor one of you moms. And I know Mother's Day can be a day of um, joy and also sorrow, and so... Um, I know the range of emotions that can come with a day with that, so I just want to acknowledge that, um, and we, I myself would love to, to pray with you and, and to be with you. We see you, um, and uh, recognizing that there can be pain with this day, but there's also great rejoicing as well, and so we want to rejoice with the mom this morning, so I'm going to have, I was going to see if there's a kid here, but Brandon Weber, come on up. You're going to be my child, I guess, but in this tin can is a category, and if uh, one of you mothers qualifies, the most qualified will win uh, something that I have in this bag, okay? So, at random, the category is, you can read it. Oh, okay. oh this is a great one. So I'm not going to be picked up by the uh, YouTube. Uh, there's no YouTube. Last time of changing a diaper. Okay, so what mother changed a diaper most recently? All right? It's 9.32 right now. I, got, I see his hand right here. 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Any, anyone can beat that? Any blowouts since then? <laughs> no? All right. Brandon, uh, congratulations. Mom, we got coffee and chocolate for you. You deserve it. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> But moms, thank you for being moms. You are a delight. Also, I want to say before we get going, and you can put the slide up there, Emery, um, but we are going to have a church-wide trip to Ecuador. Um, actually, two trips coming up. One in October that you see here, the 12th to the 17th, and then there'll be another trip in February. Um, and so kind of two trips coming up in the next year or so, and there's two different emphases of the trip. 
The one in February, I believe, uh, Zach will be leading that, and that will be mostly working on the facility, which you see there, a property that hosts uh, just different trainings uh, for the Ecuadorian pastors. Um, so it will be a lot of facility work um, and kind of work-based. Uh, but the trip that is on October 12th, um, I will be leading, so I would love to bring you with me. Uh, it will be more ministry-related uh, type thing. So we will um, join with our partner, Claudio and Silvana, uh, he's a pastor of, of a few different churches in the area. Um, and for those of you who have been there before, you know Claudio in Savannah and the entire family is very high, uh, high energy, high capacity, and you will be doing more ministry than you've probably done <laughs> in the entire year. Uh, they pack a lot in. There'll be a lot of outreach, evangelistic things, but we'll be joining with his church and the members there um, to really do, uh, just put on events uh, and also just to be with uh, the church there. Um, to join with, to share food, to laugh, to pray with. Um, and, and I say one of the greatest things about these trips is we talk about mission all the time at, at the church, right? Neighbors and nations, we want to declare and demonstrate the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And sometimes mission can just kind of be or remain just a painting on the wall. And sometimes we just need to experience it and to activate our faith to the things, what God has called us to do, which is declare and to demonstrate the gospel. Um, and so this is a great way in which God can use in your life, and also to join alongside, to, to be participants of what God is doing globally, because God is doing amazing things in Ecuador, and you can be a part of that for about a week's time. So I believe next Monday, um, it, it'd be in the newsletter and whatnot, but we'll have a Zoom informational meeting about this trip. Uh, myself and perhaps a few others who have been on the triple to share about the trip. Uh, we would love for you to just to jump on that Zoom call. It doesn't mean you're coming, but it means, hey, tell me about the trip. Um, and so would love for you to consider that, and I would love to go with you. Um, all right, so we are in Philippians. And um, as we get going, I have a dollar bill here. A one dollar singular, a singular dollar bill. And, I, and I'm holding this up here as we begin our time, not because we're going to talk about money this morning, but we're going to talk about what this represents, of what the dollar bill represents. And if we went back to 1900, gentlemen, this would buy you, this dollar bill, this would buy you a brand new dress shirt. One dollar. In 1920, you could get 10 pounds of sugar with this $1. In 1960, you could buy two tickets to the movies. And in 1990, you could give this dollar bill and receive an entire gallon of milk. But now, today, 2022, I mean, what are you getting with this dollar bill, this singular dollar bill? I mean, I think McDonald's still has the any size dollar drink, right? Oh, <laughs> you can't even get a, a, a drink at McDonald's anymore. And I say that to say that we've kind of lost value a, a bit in, in what this singular dollar bill can buy for us. And yet, over a billion people, I looked this up this week, a billion people around the world actually lives on less than a dollar a day. And in fact, over half of the population of our world lives on less than five dollars a day. Over half of the world. 
And so you would think that we as Americans who spend on average, get this, $165 a day, you would think that we must be some of the most content and happy people in the world, right? Wrong. I see the shake of the heads. Surveys since 1970 consistently come out and find that only holding strong 33% of Americans claim to be happy and content. 33%. That means 7 out of 10 Americans are unhappy, dissatisfied, and discontent. A popular news publication I ran across this week wrote this. It's on the screen. Despite all the effort and money Americans pump into the endeavor, which is really the pursuit of happiness, right? Americans consistently rank as some of the least happy people in the world. And what's more, according to the World Health Organization, Americans are far and away the most anxious people on the planet, with nearly a third of the people in this country likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. I mean, by and large, we as a people, Christians too, we fail to learn how to live a life of contentment. And I think in the back of all of our minds, right, I think we, 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 we have this thought that lingers, if I could just have a little bit more. If I could just have a little bit more, then, then I, honestly, I'll be content. And, and so we look at this dollar bill, and I bet all of us have a number that says, if I get to this number of this many dollar bills, then I promise I'll be content. And it's not just money, though, is it? If I had just a little bit bigger of a house, one more bathroom, one more bedroom, if I just had that next upgrade for a car, if I just had a little bit better of a body, right? If I just had a little bit better of a husband or wife, if I just had that one more little bit promotion at work, if I could just get that one thing and you fill in the blank, then we think, then I will be Happy, I'll be content. Well, as we continue through Philippians, as James just read, Paul says something pretty profound. In verse 11, he says, I have learned what? That in whatever situation I am to be content. And just a few short words, then he says something incredible. He says, I have learned the secret. I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret of contentment. And Paul is a, a prisoner, as we know, right? He's chained. I would assume, in some sense, he's probably afflicted, probably distressed. He's unable to freely move about. And he writes to us, ironically, on the subject of contentment. A prison inmate content in prison. A prison inmate instructing the church, those, us, we're not in prison, but he's instructing us to live a life of contentment. And as ironic as all this seems, there's incredible truth for myself and for all of us this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we pray that you truly would open your word to our hearts, Lord, and that we, our hearts, would be open to your word to receive, to be humbled what you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd prune back any hedge of disbelief 
that we would see you most clearly, that we would leave this physical building changed more in your image. We pray this, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, turn with me if you're not there. It should be on the screen too, but uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 uh, through 13. And as you get there or turn on your Bibles, let me get you into the same context that I'm at as we look at Paul's words. And, and, and you, you perhaps know this, but one of the reasons that Paul has written this letter in the first place was really to express his gratitude for a gift the Philippian church had given him. Which is why he says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at now at length you've revived your concern for me. Well, why is he rejoicing? If we go down to verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And so Paul is closing this letter, everything he said, he's closing it with a, with a heartfelt gratefulness for their provision in his time of need while he was in prison. And of course, it's, it's, it would be Paul to include in this thank you note instruction. This instruction of contentment. Of him outline uh, the secret to contentment. So what is the secret? What is it that Paul wants us to learn about contentment? I think there's three things in these short verses for us to consider. Three things that Paul says contentment is not. That it's not natural. That contentment is not natural. Secondly, it's not circumstantial. And thirdly, it's not self-filled. So it's not natural, it's not circumstantial, and it's not self-filled. And we're going to go through each one of these as kind of like a lesson for us this morning. And then hopefully we'll come out on the other side together. Sound good? So our first lesson here is that contentment is not natural. And I want to read again verses 11 and 12, and I want to see if you can pick up on this theme by the words that Paul uses here in these two verses. Paul says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have what? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And in verse 12, he says, I know how to, meaning he's acquired something, right? I know how to be brought low. I know how, again, he's acquired something. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've what? I've learned the secret. You see, Paul is saying, I've learned something. I've acquired something. He says it four times in those few words. In other words, contentment is unnatural. Contentment is unnatural. Paul didn't just roll out of bed one morning and happen into contentment. He had to learn it. He had to train his mind, and us too. We have to learn it. We have to train our mind, for contentment is unnatural. I mean, think about it in this way. Think about learning how to ride a bike for the first time. It's incredibly, at least in my mind, unnatural to believe that if I just pedal my feet in a circular motion, if I do this, I'm actually going to move forward doesn't make sense in my mind, especially as a kid. And I think it's also incredibly unnatural that I actually have to move forward in order for myself to figure out what balance looks like. So I don't fall off my bike. What seems most natural is I get on the bike and, and figure out balance. But we all know that that will lead you to tipping over, right? You actually have to move forward 
It's very unnatural. And I know as I look across this room, I think probably all of us have learned how to ride a bike at this point in our lives, right? Meaning we've put in the work to put aside what once, if we can remember back, what once felt unnatural to believe what is true about riding a bike. None of us just got on a bike the very first time and just ran down, or rode down the street, right? It was a process of learning to put aside what felt unnatural and believing what was true. And if you don't believe me or if you have struggle remembering, go home and teach a child how to read a, ride a bike today. Parents, are you with me? Right? It is a process. It takes a lot of effort and practice and failures and a lot of band-aids. It's just as one has to put in the work to learn how to ride a bike, one must put in the work to learn contentment. Because contentment does not come naturally to ourselves. And why? You guys know the answer, right? No one had to tell my little one-year-old that he has to possess every single toy ball in our house. No one had to tell him that. He just most naturally knew he needed every single ball in order to be content. And he'll let you know. That's just what it means to be human, to want something we don't have. It started in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it continues today. I want you to hear this. A heart that lacks contentment is a heart that fails to believe God's good and sufficient provision. Did you hear that? A heart that lacks contentment is a heart that fails to believe God's good and sufficient provision. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve, given, honestly, every imaginable provision. And yet, even in that perfect space, perfect, they, Adam and Eve, were caught with this wandering eye. This lingering craving for something different, for something more, for something better. And friends, failure to believe God's good and sufficient provision is going to lead you down a destructive pathway. Discontentment is the starting point to further evil such as greed and jealousy and envy and bitterness. And ultimately, a spirit of discontentment will lead you to a rejection, an outright rejection of God. For you will believe, if God really loved me, then he would see me and make my life better. Church, Paul, he's not a man, humanly, that should be content. He's in prison for nothing more than speaking the name of Jesus. And here in his letter, he's saying, hey, Thanks for the gift, but honestly, if I can be honest with you, I don't need it because I have found something. I've discovered something far better, contentment, right here, even in prison. So, so my question is, well, what has Paul learned about God that has moved him from what is natural, discontentment, 
to that which is unnatural contentment. Does that make sense? Like what has Paul learned about God allowing him to be content even in the most unlikely of places? And I think there are clues scattered throughout this letter of Philippians. And we'll just go through a few of them together. But I think he's learned a few things about God. You go to the next screen, Emery. That he's learned that God turns loss into gain. As we go back to chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see, if you believe that, it will bring contentment, even in prison. I think Paul's also learned that suffering is a gift from God. We, we looked at that in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Believe that, and it will bring contentment, even in the worst of your suffering. I think Paul's learned that God is working in us and for us. He writes in 2, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You don't believe that, and it will bring contentment, even if you feel alone and hopeless. He says in Chapter 2, verse 29 and 30. That risking your life for Jesus is an honorable thing, writing honor such men. Talking about Epaphroditus. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Believe that, and it will bring contentment even when you take gospel risk and face the potential of death. Paul's learned this, that Christ is coming again. I love this one. Christ is coming again, and we will have new bodies. He says in chapter 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like what? His glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Believe that, and it will bring contentment even when or if your body is racked by cancer or wearing down with old age. And we could keep going. There's a lot of lessons or truths that Paul has learned scattered throughout Philippians. And I encourage you to go back in your Bible and just write them all out. They're everywhere. And none of them that he's learned over his lifetime are easy to accept or believe. Each one is challenging. And, and really because these truths of God are, are in a sense like unnatural to us, it'll take time. It will be a process for us to work these out in our lives. There's no flip of the switch. There's no magic button. And the application before every single one of us, myself included, is are you willing to humbly explore and submit and persevere in putting into practice the truths of what God says? Are you willing in some sense to like fall off the bike in that process, to skin your knee for the sake of learning and believing what Jesus says is true and worthy to be trusted? Perhaps one of these truths I just read from Paul or, or another, you, you struggle to believe this morning. Perhaps there's just an unwillingness to believe it. The first step for you this morning is just to confess that to God. And to pray a prayer of, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. To move towards God. You see, contentment is unnatural. We will not happen into it. We must learn it. This is lesson one. 
Which leads us to our second lesson about contentment is that it's not circumstantial. Our contentment is not circumstantial. Right now, our culture has kind of two different approaches to thinking about contentment. The first one is more is better. And I find a deep personal attachment to this one. More is better, right? If, I need to be, if I'm going to be content, I just need more. More money, more gadgets, more things. More is better. And the other approach, which I, I don't understand these people, is that less is more. But I know people like this. That the more simply you live, the more satisfying your life will be. Right? You clean out your attic, you downsize your home, you eliminate the clutter, and you'll find contentment. Go try that one on. But each of these you know, approaches really is, is, is saying, like, if you do this, you'll, you'll find contentment, right? But, but none of those, uh, neither one of those approaches actually can guarantee that you'll find contentment. Because they assume something, and they assume that you have full control over your circumstances. But that's not the case, is it? We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. We don't know what's going to happen after this service. We don't know what's going to happen in this next minute. We have no power in ourselves to control what happens to us. So, so how foolish it is to tether our contentment onto our own uncontrollable circumstances. For, for where you might abound today, you might be brought low tomorrow. And where you might hunger today, you might face plenty tomorrow. And Paul says this exact thing in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, Paul is just saying, hey, in the good and in the bad, I am the same. My contentment is the same. Circumstances did not, would not affect Paul's level of contentment. Why? Because he anchors his contentment in someone far more lasting and sure than our uncontrollable circumstances. He anchors it to the eternal someone who fully controls our every circumstance. You see, the secret that Paul has discovered was the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finding that treasure, of finding Jesus, of knowing Jesus, changed everything. Over the past month, Emily and I have gotten into a show called The Curse of Oak Island. Anyone with me on this? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> if you know about it, you are enthused about it. It's less about a curse and everything to do about treasure hunting. It's a phenomenal show. If, if, if you have seen it, we're only in season four. I think it's a current show. I think maybe season nine. So if you're ahead of us, don't even begin to tell me about what happens, all right? But if you've not seen the show, it's, it's documenting the quest of two brothers who from when they were little boys believed that there was treasure on Oak Island. And they, they, they spend, the show is just about following them around as they try to unearth this treasure that they believe lies on the island. And it's in Nova Scotia, and over, for over 200 years, um, it's been held, not just these two brothers, but worldwide, that there's this treasure 
on the island, and no one knows what this treasure is. And there's all sorts of theories to what it actually might be. And it's actually kind of, it, it, you know, some say it's just pirate treasure, just, like, that would be exciting, right? Pirate treasure. Some say that it's like the lost gold of the Aztecs. Some say it's like buried in the island is like the original manuscripts of Shakespeare. And some, and this is just so bizarre, but they really believe it. Like, some believe are buried religious treasures, like the Ark of the Covenant is on Oak Island, somewhere. And for over 200 years, I'm not making this up, men have been seeking this treasure. And it's, it's left most everyone who sought the treasure bankrupt and broke. It's caused some to lose their lives as they dig like trenches. Like I'm saying they're digging trenches like 200 feet, 150 feet deep in the dirt. And this show just, it draws you in. It, you, you want these brothers to find that treasure, to solve the mystery of what is buried on Oak Island. But so far, at least for Emily and I, again, we're only in season four. Something must happen. We're in season nine, right? But the most that they've found to date are just like ancient coins, like mysterious carvings on rocks, and like pieces of wood that date hundreds of years that are at depths of like 150 feet. They're like, that shouldn't be there. And all of that, like all of that discovery, which I, I would say is not very significant, has cost these two brothers millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. And many years. Leaving me after every episode, I, it's like on, like you can count me every time. I turn to Emily, I'm like, why are they, what are they doing? Like, why are they keep coming back to the island? And I think it's simply this. They believe, they believe that there is treasure to be found. And because they believe there's treasure, everything they do and think is predicated on this belief of treasure. And they make some weird decisions. They sacrifice a lot to me who doesn't believe that there's treasure on the island. But you see, this is exactly what Paul expresses about treasure, the treasure he found in knowing Jesus. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Treasure. Surpassing worth. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's found a treasure and he's not letting go. Which is why when Paul in Acts 14, as we go through the history of of Paul, when he's drugged out of the city of Lystra and stoned and presumably left for dead, Paul can say, I have learned contentment in whatever the circumstance because of knowing the treasure, of knowing Jesus. It's why later on in Acts 16, when he's taken in by Lydia and shown hospitality and every provision is met for him, he can say, I've learned contentment. In any and every circumstance, because of the treasure of finding Jesus, of knowing Jesus. That's why when Paul is is then later, right after that, seized and beaten and insulted and thrown back into prison for doing no wrong, Paul can say, I've learned contentment in whatever circumstance because of the treasure I've found in knowing Jesus. And when in Acts 18, Paul's taken in by Aquila and Priscilla and again shown hospitality and provision for his every need, he can say, I've learned contentment 
in whatever circumstance for the treasure I've found in knowing Jesus. And even as the book ends, in Acts 27 and 28, as he's going to a, tri- a, a trial for a crime he you know, didn't really commit, he's shipwrecked and snake-bitten. Paul can say, hey, I've learned contentment in whatever the circumstance because of the treasure I've found in knowing Jesus. You see, if we tether our contentment to circumstances, we're destined to a life that's anxious. But if we anchor our contentment to the eternal treasure of knowing Jesus, who's the same yesterday as today as forever, never changing, unlike our circumstances, then we will find a contentment that transcends our every circumstance. And here, we won't be overwhelmed by poverty, and we won't be intoxicated by riches. Think about a thermometer. Its function is to do what? It's to register the temperature, meaning it's always going up and it's always going down, dependent on the circumstance. Now think about a thermostat. Its function is to regulate the surroundings and change when needed. You see, Paul's instructing us to be much more like a thermostat than a thermometer, right? How would you describe yourself as you consider your own life? A thermometer always going up and down, dependent on the circumstance? Or a thermostat? An ability to adjust and change as needed? How would others, your spouse, a neighbor, a a coworker, a, a roommate describe you? A thermometer or a thermostat? You see, a thermostat functions correctly when a person has absolute affection upon the person of Jesus, our greatest treasure. And when you found that treasure, everything you do and think changes. And Paul has already said this earlier in his book. He said, we're citizens of, a, of another kingdom. I mean, our affections are not of this world doesn't make sense to those around us. Our affections are not on our earthly circumstances, but entirely upon the eternal reality of our heavenly citizenship with Jesus. So the secret of contentment, it's not natural, it's learned. It's not circumstantial, it's eternal. And lastly, we see that contentment is not self-filled. That contentment is not self-filled. And we know this verse, one of the most popular verses in our country, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. Besides John 3.16, it's probably the most quoted verse, but it's also most likely the most misunderstood verse too. A lot of us want to or maybe believe that the verse says, I can do anything I want through him who gives me strength to do it. Meaning it's the student who doesn't study for their test and in their laziness attempts to cover up for it by just saying, hey, Philippians 4.13, I can do anything I want through him who gives me strength. 
But that's not the promise from God that you can do anything you want. If you want to fly an airplane, right, Dave? You don't just get into a cockpit and recite Philippians 4.13. You go to flight school. This verse has never been about what you want to accomplish, but it's entirely about the strength God provides for whatever it is that he calls you to do in this life. So if you go into that test and flunk, God gives you the strength to carry on, to pick up that pen again and seek excellence. And if you go into that test and ace it, God gives you the strength to respond with perhaps humility or empathy for those who may have struggled. Philippians 4.13 does say, I can do all things. And that's kind of the hang-up, I think. Because we are the ones doing it. I can do all things. But we're the agent. We're not the creator. We conveniently lose or, or drop off the second part of that sentence, don't we? Through him, through Jesus, who strengthens me. Yes, it's, it's me, it's, it's you doing it, but it's God's power within you. Contentment is not self-filled, it's Christ-filled. When I was in elementary school, the boys in my class went through cycles about every month of playing a particular sport. Sometimes basketball, sometimes football, sometimes soccer. And my personal favorite was Foursquare. Doubles Foursquare at that. And we came up with our own like names and unique signature moves. We were known by that. And every recess, we'd pick our partners. And I, I've always been an average athlete, like good enough to be on the team, but I'm not like the unanimous first team all pro, right? That honor at our school belonged to a kid named Philip Larson. Oh, Philip. He was the best at every sport, dominant and good looking. Where is Philip today? And whenever it worked out that I was teamed up with Philip, I knew without a doubt we would be crowned that day's recess doubles four square champions. Without a doubt. Not because of what I brought to the playground, but because of what Philip brought. Playing with Philip was an automatic championship every time. And the same is true. For the Christian. Our sufficiency comes from being united to the all-sufficient one, Jesus. This is talking about our union with Christ. That where we were deficient, or where scripture says dead in our sinful nature, he, Jesus, who was sufficient, came and took on our form so that in him, through him, we could become sufficient. Therefore, we are not self-sufficient. We are Christ-sufficient. This is not to suggest that we go home and lay on our beds waiting for God to do his thing. It's the opposite. Preacher and physician, so he's a doctor and a preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. I think it's really insightful. He says, health is something that results from right living. Health cannot be obtained directly or immediately in and of itself. And I say exactly the same thing about this question of contentment in our Christian lives. 
So he's saying that our health is a result of right living physically. So too, contentment is a result of right living spiritually. Meaning, as you walk in obedience to God, as Paul walked in obedience to God, contentment was produced. That contentment is a byproduct in your heart and soul as you walk in obedience to the things of God. Christian, if our contentment is Jesus plus anything, we'll never find true and lasting contentment. If it's Jesus plus the approval of family, if it's Jesus plus success in my job, if it's Jesus plus a spouse, Jesus plus a car, if it's Jesus plus anything, then you'll never find true and lasting contentment. What is enough? What is sufficient? It's Christ. It's Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we can be content. And we can only be content because he gives us the strength to be content. True and lasting contentment, it's not self-filled, it's Christ-filled. It's not circumstantial, it's eternal. And it's not natural, it's learned. It's the secret of contentment. Let me close by reading a poem I ran across this week that I think sums up a lot of how we um, perhaps feel about contentment. It reads this, I didn't write this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holidays. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. You see, if Jesus isn't enough for you, you'll never get what you want. I should say, you'll never get what you truly need. If you don't know Jesus today, I invite you to consider what the Bible says. That though lost in our sin, every single one of us, consumed with ourself, Jesus offers us his life. A life that he says you'll find perfect rest in. A salvation that he says you'll never thirst again. A true and lasting contentment. Christ is enough. He is sufficient. Let's believe that together. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning and the reminder of the treasure we have in you, Jesus. Lord, help us by faith to believe that in more and more significant ways. Lord, that the treasure we've found in you would shape 
how we think and what we do in this life. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would open their minds and hearts to see you most clearly and to draw them unto yourself. Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would do that. Lord, we love you. We worship you this morning. In your name we pray, amen.